Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Um, hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. My name is Anna Domdai, and I'm the host of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ivana Bajic about her book, Can You Run Away from Sorrow? Mothers Left Behind in 1990s Belgrade. Ivana, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anna. It is a pleasure to be here and to uh, talk to you and to our audience about uh, my new book. Thank you. <laughs> And before we get into the book, I have a general question. You write um, in the beginning that you originally studied something else and then only later discovered anthropology and anthropological fieldwork. Can you tell us how that happened? Yes, that is right. I was actually doing a research for uh, an MPhil thesis in uh, Greek modern Greek literature in Athens back in 2003. While um, living in Athens, I was staying in a friend's apartment and um, he showed me a book by British-American anthropologist uh, called Michael Hertzfeld. And the book was related to Greece and to Crete specifically. And he said, you may be interested since you're learning about Greece and Greek culture, you may find some more answers. And when I started reading that book, I realized that that was um, the language that I was looking for, all the um, things that I could not understand about um, Greece or their history somehow started to come into place when I um, encountered anthropology. And I realized that was the language that I was looking for. And there is also another element, and that is the the fact that I was growing up and I was a student during the decade of the 1990s that was filled with political turmoil, with war that was going on in the former Yugoslav republics mainly. And all that shaped my desire to understand how the war happened, why it had happened, how we ended up in that mess that we have. So anthropology really gave me a toolbox to start exploring that experience. Yeah, that's great. And um, you take a very clear stance on the importance of your research topic. So how did you come across that topic of Mothers Left Behind in 1990s Belgrade? And what role did gender and feminism play in that process? Um, that is a great question. And part of the answer lies again in the actual experience of growing up and living in Belgrade in the 1990s and being very much a participant observer in a way, to put it in anthropological context of the events that were unfolding at the time, witnessing departures of many, not only family members, but also um, friends and acquaintances and hearing of other people's family members who were leaving the country. And it felt that almost everyone I knew 
and everyone that knew someone close to me had someone who had left the country um, in the 1990s. It felt very um, life-changing living in a situation where people were constantly leaving uh, that place. And later on, when I became a student, when I came to uh, England to do a master's uh, degree in Southeast European studies and started learning uh, and reading about the war and everything that happened with the collapse of Yugoslavia in the 1990s, there was a gap in literature um, that had said very little about intimate lives and experiences of people who were living in Serbia and in other parts of Yugoslavia as well. It's not that Serbia was exception, but there was hardly anything written at the time in early 2000s about how um, ordinary people lived at that time, and let alone women. There was a lot written about the political discourse, about the political elites, about nationalism and how everything created a perfect storm. But there was very little comparatively um, to be read about the experiences of um, just ordinary people. And from my experience of of being a witness to that was that um, there was a very significant gap of the voices of older women present in uh, literature talking about uh, wars in former Yugoslavia, again, not only about Serbia, but other parts of uh, former Yugoslavia as well. And um, women somehow were so underrepresented in um, any discussions about the war. And uh, most of that public discourse was filled with male voices. And um, there was comparatively very little, if if not to say nothing, related to uh, women's experiences, whereas they were usually the ones who were making those birthday cakes to celebrate birthdays of their sons and daughters who lived in Canada or in Australia or in the United States at the time. Um, They were the ones who were talking all the time about their children. They were the ones who were trying to recreate the presence, the physical presence of um, sons and daughters that they haven't seen in years, sometimes five or 10 years, or sometimes they they would see one another um, every few years. But there was clearly massively felt absence of their children, and they were trying to recreate that somehow. And I found that really fascinating, just walking into someone's home and being offered a slice of cake um, because they were celebrating their son's or daughter's birthday. Um, and that is a memory, one of the memories that really stuck with me for many years. And I wanted to go back to that and explore that topic further with um the actual um, actors who have experienced that kind of loss. Yeah, as an anthropologist myself, that sounds very relatable. Um, You just mentioned the cakes. And in your book, hunger and food are very important topics. And you suggest that hunger is um, a social rather than an economic problem. Can you uh, maybe elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yes, that is a um, a really important, um, I would say, argument and one that is found across different um, cultures. So it is not something that um, I only noticed in the case of Serbia and former Yugoslavia in the 1990s, but it is a phenomenon that was documented elsewhere. Uh, For example, um, in few of the studies about Russia in the 1990s, Melissa Caldwell, uh, American anthropologist, also recorded uh, that the problem of hunger was highlighted as social by uh, her research participants, a social problem, um, less of an economic problem in the sense that, um, and also um, if you um, have a look at the work of um, people like Janet Poppendike, um, who studied food banks and uh, food poverty in um, the United States, she also discusses the issues of food poverty 
as social rather than necessarily economic uh, phenomenon. So this is something that um, feeds into the existing debates and discourses about food poverty um, in contemporary world, whereby those who have least access to um, social networks, and just to explain to our younger audiences, we're not talking about social networks in terms of online platforms through which people connect, but social networks in terms of um, the actual support of the people that one knows and that can provide um, financial support or any other kind of material support, such as uh, childcare, um, helping with help with housing, for example, um, help with various sort of advice or um, any kind of support that one can receive from their network of friends, uh, family, um, in the case of former Yugoslavia, neighbours play a very important role, as well as work colleagues. So there are more than just people that one lives with or that one works with. They become part of one social network. And that social network then uh, became in the 1990s crucial for people's survival because this is where information was being exchanged. This is where people would learn about availability of particular foodstuffs in um, a certain part of town or in a particular shop or where people would, uh, for example, pool resources. Um, In the 1990s, many workplaces stopped paying um, salaries to their employees and instead they were paying either part of the salary or sometimes even entire salaries in kind, meaning that um, they would pay their employees in form of large quantities of um, particular foodstuffs, whether that was sugar oil, flour, sometimes even meat. And one would then end up with quantities of one particular food that clearly was too much for one uh, person or one family. So they had to share those between the people in their social network. And there was that element of solidarity between people. So if someone shared uh, their sack of whatever they may have received, for example, flour or sugar, they wouldn't necessarily write it down who they shared it with or how much they shared with, but there would be an implicit understanding and almost expectation that that would be reciprocated at some point. So those kind of um, exchanges existed within social networks. And this is, I have to emphasize, it wasn't um, an entirely new phenomenon in across former Yugoslavia and in this particular case, Serbia in the 1990s. It is something that existed during socialist times, during periods of different shortages. Uh, People already had those social networks in place, but they became really vital for um, survival in the 1990s. Those who were outside the networks um, were the people who were most heavily, um, who most heavily felt Um, the difficulties of the 1990s and the hunger. And those were traditionally marginalized community, such as in the case of Serbia, Roma, Um, elderly men. They were not traditionally marginalized community, but in this case, they became one because they were not as well networked. Um, They didn't have so um, well connected, or they were not so well weaved in uh, uh, those social networks as women, for example. So there was a clear gender imbalance there. And um, another group that was really badly affected were uh, those who depended on institutional support uh, for Uh, either because they were very ill and they lived within institutions. Um, There was a really poignant case of a psychiatric hospital in the south of Serbia where all the patients um, died within the space of several weeks because of hunger and lack of medicines and lack of heating, for example, in the first half of the 1990s. So these were um, the communities or the people who were most badly affected by the hunger. Those who had their social networks to rely on and to support them 
were more cocooned, even if they themselves um, had very little means. As long as they had someone to call, someone to um, rely on, they would be taken care of um, at um, uh, during this uh, period of crisis. Um, adding on that and coming back to the mother child relationship um you describe how important it is for mothers left behind um to send gifts to their children mostly homemade foods um and stuff like that yet you argue that marcel mao's notion of constituting relationships through gift exchange is not helpful here to understand the relationships mothers have with their children um can you please explain how you came to that conclusion and why sending food to their children is so important for mothers and um, even um, more distant relatives who also stayed in Belgrade? Thank you for this question. I love it because it is a, um, an example how anthropology works, really. Um, and it's that meeting between ethnographic encounters and what we witness on the ground and try to then explain and understand that in anthropological terms. Um, and for that, we need to go back a little bit and unpack uh, Master Moss's um, explanation of the gift exchange, which presupposes the existence of a relationship um, that happens before that gift exchange takes place. And the examples um, presented in this book, Can You Run Away From Sorrow, are actually going uh, away from that um, notion and going closer in direction of uh, the examples of gift exchange and gifting practices described by anthropologists working in, Mil in Melanesia. For example, in the work of um, anthropologists like Nancy Mann, or Annette Weiner, or uh, Andrew, and especially Marilyn Strathern, um, their understanding of gifting practices is um, that it is not the um, that gifting practices uh, exist between um, uh, two parties before um, uh, um, as a um, um, necessary requirement for that relationship, but it is to um, send really that gifting practices are used in order to um, assert one's position in that relationship, one's place in that relationship. So when, for example, a mother sends a um, gift of food or any other gift, but it was usually food was more important than other forms of gifts for mothers themselves um, to her son or her daughter somewhere abroad. It was mainly to say, um, this is who I am. I'm doing what a mother in, um, in her sort of perspective is supposed to do to demonstrate that she still was a mother because it is um, really interesting to see for these women how their identities became quite fragile in circumstances where there were no children to be mothered anymore when those children had left the country and had um, little contact for quite um, obvious reasons. Um, the country was under the UN embargo. There were no flights for most part of the 1990s. There was a deep economic crisis. Uh, people from the country um, could uh, not really travel uh, without uh, having to go through many obstacles, financial um, sorting out visas. It was very, very challenging for most mothers to be able to leave the country and to travel to visit their children abroad in the 1990s. Things have changed in the meantime, but, uh, in the meantime, but during that last decade, that was a major obstacle. So being able to send that parcel of food or to send a, even a recipe was really uh, more um, a statement about one's own identity and asserting that identity to a son or daughter somewhere abroad and to say, I still exist as a mother. So it wasn't necessarily a reminder of a mother son or mother-daughter relationship as such, as much as it was um, asserting and reminding uh, the other party in that relationship of one's own identity. And more than that, I would say it was also a reminder to oneself 
about that part, that segment of one's identity, that that woman still existed as a mother to someone, that that sort of motherhood identity, mother identity has not disappeared with the disappearance, physical almost disappearance of a child. Because the experience out the, uh, of, of maintaining that relationship um, as a mother towards a child becomes really um, challenging when the other party is not there. How can you be a mother to someone if there is no child um, to accept um, that role um, of a mother? And that is why um, the gifts of food and even recipes became really important and food more than anything else I would argue because is, is it was so potent because it is something that is very there isn't a more intimate gift than food because it is something that is ingested it becomes part of oneself it is built into one's um, body and one's cells and um, it goes through the interior so it is really um penetrating someone's identity at the most intimate level. This is how food works. And uh, I would say that this is something that mothers did completely instinctively. There was no theory going on into that, why they wanted to send food. They felt it was something that um, best um, sent a message to her son or to her daughter about who she was and how she did things. Because when you cook something, there is so much of oneself invested in that. So it is not only the choice of the ingredients or how you combine them, but it is also the very process of how those ingredients are combined. And um, also there is the, if you want to call it post-production process, so how all that is packaged and how it is sent and transported. So there is a lot of thinking and planning involved and if you think about the circumstances where the country was under the embargo, where any uh, flow of either people or goods was um, heavily affected by the uh, by the sanctions, it becomes almost an endeavor and um, a whole. Um, it it gets certain um, weight. Uh, that goes beyond the actual dish that is being sent there. Um, the whole price of really sending something um, is so much, go, kind of extends beyond the actual value of that food that perhaps what they were sending was worth in today's monies, for example, five euros or five pounds, whereas the actual cost of sending it would be 10 times more than that, and not to mention time and the effort that goes into all that and planning. Um, So it really is crucial for mothers because through that process, they're reminding themselves that that side to their identity is still very much alive, that even if a child is not there, they're still someone's mother. I find this whole food practices topic super interesting. And um, I'm also interested in like the, on the other end of the relationship, how the food is received. And you write that migrant children eventually stopped eating the gifts they were being sent or um, Serbian dishes in general. And I was wondering if that was partly because of some sort of westernization um, they were going through maybe um, or um, yeah, why um, why did that happen? And then I wanted to ask secondly, how mothers left behind thought about that topic. What did they think um, about their children uh, stopping eating Serbian dishes? Thank you for that question. Um, I would say it is part of the question of cosmopolitics, whereby on the one hand, migrants quite often, and this is not just the case of, say, Serbian migrants um, in the 1990s, but uh, many migrants across the world um, have a tendency to embrace cosmopolitan cuisines, either in opposition to the um, culture and cuisine that they're um, hailing from, or in addition to it. Um, And that happens sometimes, it happens for various reasons. Sometimes it is uh, just a pure desire to um, experience something new, to become someone new. Again, um, 
food and eating practices are one of the most intimate ways of building one's sense of identity and sense of belonging. And if one really wants to feel that they belong, uh, for example, in Toronto or they belong in Sydney, or for example, Frankfurt or um, London, doesn't really matter where one is, um, eating whatever locals are eating becomes one of the prime ways of incorporating uh, local culture and feeling more accepted and feeling more at home in the new place. So that would be part of the reason why migrants embrace so wholeheartedly. A lot of the migrants um, from who came from Serbia in the 1990s embraced um, with open arms um, new cuisines and um, took a, um, a little distance from their um, culture and cuisine that they left behind. But there is also another layer in the case which is specific to this cohort of migrants who arrived from, uh, who were coming from Serbia in the 1990s, and that is the proximity uh, of their culture, uh, which they left behind, to uh, the messy war that was going on in their homeland. Um, let's not forget that while Belgrade is today's capital of Serbia, it used to be the capital of Yugoslavia and it was quite an open um, town and quite an open city. There were many people hailing from mixed marriages. There were many people uh, arriving during the uh, period of socialism in Yugoslavia to Belgrade either to study or to work and um, they would fall in love, they would get married and they would stay there. They may uh, have been born in Slovenia or in Bosnia, Herzegovina or Croatia, uh, Macedonia, and they would remain in, um, in Serbia. So for many people, young people who left as uh, migrants from um, Belgrade and from Serbia in the 1990s, the fact that they fled a, um, a part of the world didn't necessarily mean that they were Serbian. They may have been born to mixed um, ethnically um, to, uh, to ethnically mixed parents, where one of their parents would belong to one ethnicity and the other one to another. Uh, religion may have played a role as well, where one parent may have belonged to one uh, religious group, another one to the other, and none of that probably played a significant uh, role during the period of um, sort of peace, um, if you want to put it that way, and uh, Yugoslav, peaceful Yugoslav coexistence until 1991, uh, whereas that escalated and suddenly all of these differences came into the forefront and became quite important. So for one um, to, for example, uh, then say that they are continuing to eat this dish or that dish could have been quite hurtful to either their father or to their mother if whatever they continued to eat or um, to consume abroad was a reminder or uh, or was sending a message to the other one that they were excluded from their choice. So all of a sudden, what one was eating in the 1990s abroad became quite a political or politicized issue because if you eat a, um, a dish which is associated with one ethnic group or one religious uh, group could be a sign that um, you were you would be sending one would be sending a a sign back home to the other family members about how you felt about them and um, food became quite fraught in the 1990s with one's identity and since food is so delicately connected to one's identity and it builds it. For many of the 1990s migrants, it became easier in a way to bypass their home dishes and to leave them for a while um, and embrace cosmopolitan cuisines. That doesn't mean that practices of the people did not change. So what people used to do in the 1990s does not mean that um, 30 years later, or sorry, 20 years later, um, they're still doing the same. They, Some of them could have gone back to um, cooking what their mothers used to cook or grandmothers used to cook or fathers in some cases. But um, people's habits do change over time. And um, as the war sort of became more distant um, in terms of past and the years that have passed since the end of the um, Yugoslav Wars, 
so did people's attitudes probably change. Um, so um, what I captured really was a snapshot in the early 2000s of people's practices. Um, these were migrants in Serb- uh, who came from Serbia in the 1990s to London that I worked with, and those were their experiences. I also captured... Um, some of the experiences of mothers who were sending food to their um, daughters or sons across um, the world, so to different parts of the world, not only to um, to London in the United Kingdom, and some of them had similar issues. They were they felt quite disappointed and really heartbroken that their daughters were um, commenting negatively on food sent from home. Um, and the comments, the sort of feedback that children, adult children were sending back to their mothers was usually um, complain, contained complaints about the health uh, propensities of the food and that how the, the food from Serbia wasn't, was too greasy, it was too heavy, it was too spicy. Um, cakes, for example, would... Um, people would often complain that they had too much sugar or too much butter or walnuts or whatever, that they were too rich in a way, and they become too heavy for their stomachs. And I find this really interesting because um, there was, I came across an article that documented similar example with Japanese migrants living in South Korea, that when they were supposed to go back to Japan, that there were all kinds of issues, um, that they said that their stomachs could not really digest um, food from homeland. And there is something of, of this sort of attempt to really blend into the local culture. And many of the uh, 1990s migrants uh, did actually um uh, managed to uh, blend in really well into their newly um, chosen um, home countries in the 1990s. Um, but it came with a price and um, for mothers uh, who felt that they were being rejected, it wasn't just their food that was rejected, but they felt it quite personally that they were being rejected if the food that they were sending was not welcome. So again, food being so intimately connected to one's being, it becomes very difficult to um, almost remove it and remove oneself from one's identity, from the gifting practices of food. Um, The food identity and one's personal identity become very much intertwined in that process. So if one didn't want to eat food from home, uh, to mothers that sent a message that one didn't feel like part of that home anymore. Yeah, again, super interesting. Thank you very much for that. Um, I think I have to move on a little bit from the food practices. Um, how did practices of motherhood and family life change once the children left? Um, I'm thinking about materiality here and rituals and ways of simply making a family through being together, which suddenly just wasn't possible anymore for the families. Um, That is uh, studying uh, one's changes to one's identity through the lens of the material culture is... um, very useful, very beneficial, because um, you can follow by looking at how people go throughout their daily lives, um, how their daily routine is structured, um, what they use at home, what are the objects that um, they're using, or then or what are the objects which are not being used, um, how the space is being utilized at home, what are they doing with the rooms that once were inhabited by their um, children? All of that becomes um, tells you so much more than people can say in any interview. Um, so material culture studies are a really crucial um, tool for understanding and having that sort of deep understanding of the processes that are going on um, in one's um, intimate experience of, of, of such uh, transformative changes, um, such as the collapse of, uh, of a country, the collapse of socialism and everything else. Um, what happened often was that uh, women, in a way, preserved their homes as museums of their own motherhood. They used the rooms of their children um, to 
sort of freeze the time and to remind no one else but themselves um, of their identity as mothers because there was no one who was coming into the rooms of their sons or daughters. It was only themselves. And uh, by going into those rooms and seeing, for example, the posters of uh, the bands from the 1980s um, that their son or daughter uh, loved to listen to before they left the country in the early 1990s, they would be reminded of uh, the family that once existed there, of their own role within that family, of their uh, mother that had quite a spe- uh, specific role in their society. And this is something that sort of um, I haven't so far uh, focused so much on. But for the women of the generation that I worked with, and um, I just to specify, a lot of them were born uh, around um, the time of the Second World War. So we are taught, we are looking at women born in the 1930s. Some of them were born in late 1920s, but it was mainly um, generations born in 1930s and 1940s that I worked with. They were socialized into this um, identity of uh, of a woman who was expected to get education and to work, um, to find employment. All of them, uh, most of them were employed during uh, socialist um, Yugoslavia and had some kind of education. Some were uh, had higher education, some had um, um, secondary education, but all of them uh, were um, active uh, citizens in socialist Yugoslavia. But despite... Um, having that role um, in the society, they still carry that burden of um, being homemakers and also being um, professionals in their chosen careers. And in order to um, assert their place in the society, women were um, relied a lot on uh, family work and that invisible work that goes on behind the closed doors within their families of being carers for their children, for their parents, for um, their uh, mother and and, and father-in-law, for example. Uh, All of that work uh, was um, going on away from the public scene, away from the public eye, but within the sphere of domesticity, um, was the space where women during socialism really had an opportunity to um, exert their power and uh, their women's identities thrived uh, on that power. And the situation in the 1990s, in a way, tried to reverse that. It was they were left without that tool um, that allowed them without their families, that allowed them that sort of space that where normally they would be as, as kind of elderly women in the society, they would be expected to receive some kind of care and um, attention from their family members. Um, there was a lot of reciprocity in those relationships in, in the sense that elderly women were offering childcare for their grandchildren, but they were also receiving care for themselves uh, by their daughters or their daughters-in-law when they got a bit older and they needed help and support. Um, In the 1990s, there were uh, very few care homes for the elderly in in Serbia. Most elderly were taken care of by their family members. And in the absence of that Uh, next generation to look after the older generation these women were left without um not only without the sort of the the, their playing field where they they could exert their own power but they were also left without the support that they would um that they would normally expect to receive um in the more advanced age so for them it became really um crucial being able to um somehow reinvent themselves through that engagement with the material culture of home uh, by reminding themselves of their position in the family, um, by continuing to cook 
for example, for um, in larger pots and pans and not downsizing to smaller pots and pans because it would be like uh, accepting one's defeat. So they would continue to cook. They would then offer that food to other family members. They often created um, like pseudo family relationships with other young people, either um, um friends or neighbors uh, who reminded them of their daughters or of their sons um, uh, whom they then would either take under their wing or would sort of look after or they would exchange gifts with them. So um, mothers use it and women use that sort of material culture to um, affirm and uh, reestablish their identity as um, older women, almost as matriarchs in the society. And they didn't want to give up that fight just because their children were somewhere abroad. And I found that really fascinating how our material world is used um, and can uh, by, by people to uh, really heal uh, broken identities. This is something that um, has been widely described among migrant communities and migrants um, themselves, like in the work of David Sutton um, uh, and his book, Remembers of Repasts, where he writes about Greek migrants from the island of Kalimnos who are living in the United States and how uh, they are using food and uh, practices um, uh, uh, with related to the food to restore the sense of wholeness of their identities. And I would say that uh, families left behind, and in particular case, mothers left behind, are doing exactly the same. They're using food and uh, feeding practices to really mend those broken identities and to say, yes, I'm still a mother and I matter and I exist. I haven't disappeared just because my child uh, has gone. Mm -hmm. While thinking about this um, whole support um, topic, um, I have to think about support money-wise. And um, you also wrote like Serbia is one of the countries that receives the biggest amount of remittances like every year. And yet you write how mothers refuse to accept remittances and um, explain how that is linked to their supposed maybe class status. Um, can you elaborate a bit on that maybe? Yes, I found that really fascinating because when I did my um, first half of my research with migrants who came from Serbia to um, London in the 1990s, money uh, did not play um, a significant role in their gifting practices. There was maybe one or two people out of 40, 40 that I worked with um, who was sending money uh, on a regular basis to their relatives in Serbia. And when I went to Serbia, uh, equally, I worked with around 40 people over there and uh, maybe two or three of them reported receiving uh, financial support in terms of money from their um, sons or daughters abroad. And one of those cases was someone who was living in a large apartment and they could not afford to pay the bills for the upkeep of the apartment. And uh, when, uh, when um, this person said to her children that she was thinking about selling and downsizing, they asked her not to do that and offered to uh, contribute to the monthly bills instead because they wanted her to remain there so that one day when they would come to visit, they would have a place to stay. Um, and the second person who was uh, receiving financial support, again, said that um, her son thought that uh, part of him taking care of his mother and other relatives included um, bringing money uh, and distributing money to his relatives during his visits. Uh, however, she prefaced that by saying that she never touched any single uh, cent from the money that her son had um, given her and that money was deposited to a uh, to an account that he would one day inherit. So in a way, that money became, as I call it, inalien inalienable gift. It becomes a gift that cannot really be taken away. And mothers just uh, become, they have become in their own uh, view, vessels uh, for preserving that money um, for um, their children to inherit one day as opposed to uh, necessarily 
consuming it for their own needs um, at that moment. Um, there was, on the other hand, so I didn't experience in my fieldwork um, that uh, prevalence and dominance of remittances uh, in people's experiences, either in migrants' experiences who were supposedly sending money or in the experiences of families who were supposedly receiving money. And yet, while I was doing my fieldwork, in particular in Serbia in 2005, 2006, I was reading in the newspapers about these presumed heaps of money that migrants were showering on their uh, family members in Serbia. Um, the newspapers were reporting that there were around $5 billion uh, dollars sent to um, Serbia every single year. We're talking about a country that had at the time around 7 million people. Uh, when you divide <laughs> that amount of money by the number of people living there, it would mean that more or less everyone would have a really beautiful lifestyle, um, that every single citizen of Serbia uh, was receiving every single month hundreds of euros or dollars um, on a regular basis. And um, what I was witnessing in the homes of people who uh, actually had children abroad uh, was absolutely no sign of any kind of lavish lifestyle. It was quite the contrary. Most people lived in apartments that were last refurbished probably in the 1980s um, and that had no new appliances that were not, you couldn't see the presence of those remittances. And the more I was digging um, the more um, sort of I discovered that money represented almost like a taboo among uh, the, my research participants in Serbia, among the mothers that I was working with. They were quite offended by my question of whether they were, where was the money? Because they didn't consider that as an appropriate question to be asked because they considered that as mothers who were, and women, again, uh, who were socialized in socialist Yugoslav uh, quite patriarchal norms, that it was their role and their duty to financially provide for their children and not the other way around. They didn't consider themselves as the receivers of financial support from their children, even in the 1990s when they really needed that support. Again, I have to preface this, there was one exception where that particular person accepted uh, financial support with the bills from her two uh, children who were living in the States. All the other mothers said those practices were something reserved for families of guest workers, of gastarbeiter, because during the time of socialist Yugoslavia, there was uh, um, the presence, again, absent presence of gastarbeiter um, that uh, dominated the um, uh, public discourse and there was almost a um a notion of stigma and the ridicule related to uh families of guster of guest workers uh, these were um skilled or low skilled workers who were going to western germany to work on temporary migrant as temporary migrants uh, a lot of them stay there for longer than their contracts um sort of um initially were drafted for, and uh, they some of them even um, remained in Germany until their retirement. And uh, their practices consisted of regularly sending their um, earnings from Western Germany to their families back in Yugoslavia. And um, there was a lot of negative um, public discourse surrounding those uh, remittance practices, whereby that money was often perceived to be spent in unethical ways, that people were uh, building houses that no one was then living with uh, inside, sorry, um, that the money was spent on the so-called conspicuous consumption, and that people... Um, led some um, lavish lifestyle. So there was, um, again, quite a negative uh, image uh, surrounding families of guest workers. Um, and having said that, um, I just have to emphasize that there was a class distinction, even though Yugoslavia was supposedly a classless society, uh, there was a class distinction um, between um, guest workers and their families. And um, 
others in the society uh, and other layers in the society in the sense that many if not most of the guest workers hailed from um, either uh, rural parts of Yugoslavia and um, as such they belonged to um, they were of peasant origin or um, they were they worked as uh, workers in factories so they would be working class and um, the attitude of mothers I worked with in Belgrade was that as members of the so-called self-proclaimed urban middle class, uh, they somehow stood out and uh, from that sort of working class slash peasant uh, class of peasants uh, that guest workers represented in public discourse. And to be able to say, no, I'm not receiving money and I would never accept money from my son or daughter who live in wherever Australia, Canada, wherever people have emigrated, uh, migrated to in the 1990s, was a way of asserting one's class distinction and to saying, I still belong to Yugoslav middle class, even though Yugoslavia was no more middle class, was really no more because these mothers became so impoverished in the 1990s. um, They really could not financially, their circumstances did not correspond to middle class anymore. But looking the way that they consider themselves on the basis of um, their practices and the basis of their sometimes education, sometimes their previous occupation, um, their cultural capital, all of these, in their views, determine them as belonging and sharing the values of that Yugoslav socialist middle class. So um, remittances became quite a, a big class issue for mothers that I worked with, and again, I have to emphasize that this is this was something specific for the generation of women, but born and uh, around that sort of um, just before the Second World War, during the Second World War, who lived most of their life in socialism in Yugoslavia. Um, that these class values um, that they were socialized with, they have then taken with them during that period of crumbling of everything, socialism and and Yugoslavia and the values and everything. And it just makes it even more stand out and even more extraordinary what they were doing and saying, no, I would rather starve than accept the money or use the money that um, they have received in some cases from their child uh, who was living abroad. so it, it is really fascinating to see um, this clash between the crumbling of um, class values uh, that belong to socialism and the new sort of while the new values were being churned out in that sort of post-socialist crumbling. So um, I found that as anthropologists really fascinating to observe and to document. Thanks so much for explaining um, that to us. I have two quick last questions for you. One um, uh, regarding the book. Um, we were talking about mothers a lot, obviously, since the book is called Mothers Left Behind. But um, what about the fathers left behind? What role did they play in your research? And um, yeah, what can you say about them? When I went to um, to do fieldwork in Serbia, I was expecting to work equally with mothers and fathers and also with other family members like siblings. But um, the reality on the ground just uh, changed everything because I encountered that in most of my encounters, uh, um, I encountered that at most of my participants um, turn out to be women, either because they were divorced or because they were widows. And when I started looking at where are the men, why are they missing, where what happened with the fathers, there were some fathers, but um, significantly um, they kind of um, they, they were outnumbered significantly by uh, the number of women in that research. Um, and um, the lifespan in 2006 for men was 69 five years and it was 75 years for women so women outlived by more than five years uh, their um, spouses uh, male spouses and um, 
that was part of the reason. But another part of the reason was really that women were uh, more open. They were the ones who um, really wanted to talk um, to me. And um, I ended up in a, um, a bit awkward situation that my time for research in Belgrade was coming to an end. And I had at least 10 more women who contacted me through their friends and said they wanted to speak to me. So there was almost a wish and desire, and I have run out of time, so I had to say no to them, but uh, sadly. But that, to me, go went to show um, the need of these women to just to share their stories with someone because no one was really interested in hearing about their experiences. Um, so I can't really say any more um, than that, um, but it was the few fathers that did participate in um, in the research had quite different approach to their uh, children's migration experiences. And um, but I could not really make any generalized statements um, just because I, there were not enough fathers present in the research um, to sort of be able to be, make any confident generalizations about them. Um, they were missing. They were just not there. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them have died before their wives. So I ended up working with uh, women rather than with women and men. Thank you. Um, I'm done with my questions concerning the book, uh, but I wanted to ask in the end, what are you currently doing? Um, can we expect more research on similar topics in the future? Um, yes, I am still very much interested in the topic of uh, migration and um, how big political events have shaped families uh, across uh, southeastern Europe. So, uh, but this is um, uh, looking closely at the migration experiences within my own family. So, I'm looking at two generations before me at um, how people moved and why they moved across uh, what at that time used to be. Ottoman Empire and then uh, Austrian um, Hungary uh, and uh, what is today Northern Macedonia and Serbia and how people became in, uh, almost embroiled with political events um, and um, um, various sort of uh, political changes that were uh, that involved the entire region, like the um, various uprisings and wars at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, how that affected families and how that changed the structure of the family. Um, I was growing up hearing various stories and I could never really join the dots of how some of my ancestors and why um, why they had to leave uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina and how they ended up in today's northern Macedonia and then Serbia. I just could not understand that. And it took me many years of um, documenting uh, various journeys and uh, trying to understand and also how the structure of the family has changed from living in extended families called Zadruga to living in nuclear families um, and um, the impact that migration had on emancipation of women in particular in the family. Um, I find all of that absolutely fascinating and migration still remains uh, my um, academic um, sort of interest and personal interest as well. That also sounds super interesting. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to reading more of your work. Um, is there anything you want to add? Have I missed something? Anything you want to um, tell the audience? Yes, I would um, extend this as a call to um, colleagues and to everyone working in the field of migration to pay attention to what go to how uh, migration impacts families left behind, because most migration um, studies focus on the experiences of migrants. Um, hardly any studies, with some exceptions, um, such as, for example, studying uh, uh, studies by Rachel Perenas of uh, the impact of um, Filipino mothers' emigration on the children left behind in the Philippines. Uh, most other studies are mainly focused on the experiences of migrants. And uh, 
my conclusion from this research is that migration affects those who remain um, in the country of origin or in the area of origin equally, if not even more than migrants. And that that sense of displacement is often found among people who um, haven't moved anywhere. And in particular, in today's circumstances where we are seeing new wars happening um, across the world and uh, refugees streaming from uh, the previous wars and from the new wars, and we can expect more refugees from climate crisis also to um, start spreading across the world, we cannot ignore uh, the situation with families left behind because what happens with the people left behind um, is often more tragic than what we see with migrants. Migrants are often used for political purposes. Their families left behind are not interested to politicians in the host societies, thereby, but that doesn't mean that they are not worth studying or paying attention or thinking about them when we are thinking, when I say we, I mean policymakers, I'm not one of them. Mm-hmm. When policymakers are considering what are the best policies for uh, migrants and tackling migration issues. So uh, this is just a call to start looking at societies um, and families left behind by migrants in order to get a full picture. Right, perfect. Okay, Ivana, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great talking to you. Um, I hope you also enjoyed it. Um, Thank you so much, Anna, for inviting me. It was an absolute pleasure. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, more talks and uh, listening to new podcasts. Thank you.